Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church, again. We were doing some last-minute uh, changes. My computer literally died as I was walking up here. Um, no, I got it. So, um, this I haven't preached out of notes, like paper, in a long time. So, we're going to depend on God's word here. You guys want to go ahead and open up the Genesis. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. Um, I shouldn't say that. We depend on God's word every morning. Now we're going to depend on God's grace in my life as we uh, work through this. But we are going to continue Genesis. Um, I hope, I hope you guys have been following along as we as a church have been reading through Genesis now for, uh, uh, what are we on, three, four, going on five weeks, right? You can always read along with us online. I think there's a slide where you can find us on all the social media stuff. We go back one. Is that the right slide? Yeah. I don't know what any of that stuff means. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, at Calvary West Hills. I think it's the same on all three of those. You can go on there and you could just join the church body as we are reading through Genesis. And then on Sundays, we are looking at Jesus in Genesis and we're looking at different spots where we see Jesus. We have covered a lot of ground since last week. Right, last week, if you remember, Phil came up here and he, he preached and we looked at the faithfulness of Abraham and his trust in God as it pertained to his son Isaac. Towards the end, Phil showed us that Isaac was a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. And when I talk about type of Jesus, we're not talking about somebody who's like Jesus or somebody who's kind of Jesus or somebody who has the authority of Jesus. What we're simply talking about is a person, a place, an object, or an event that God has ordained to act as a um, resemblance of, right? It's going to predict to us the person of Jesus or the works of Jesus. And when we looked at um, Isaac last week, we saw that there was a whole bunch of similarities between Isaac's life and Jesus. But one of the big things was the difference between the two. Because we saw that when Isaac was, when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, God provided a ram so that Isaac wouldn't be sacrificed. That's not like Jesus. Jesus was our sacrifice. Jesus did go to the cross. Jesus was killed. Jesus was sacrificed for us. So that is the big difference. God saved our life by sacrificing the son, uh, his own son's life. Right, and we see that in Scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right, God sacrificed Jesus for us. And as we move through Genesis this week, Isaac, we see that Isaac, the young teenager that was up on the hill, now comes down. He's gotten married. He's had kids. He's had children. And while his wife Rebecca was pregnant with twins, God told her that the older will serve the younger. Right, that was God's plans for Isaac's twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And this was actually an inversion of the cultural, ner- cultural norms. Right? In that day, the oldest son, he would be the one that would get the bulk of the inheritance. He would be the one that would co- become the patriarch or the leader of the family. And here Jesus says, no, it's going to be the younger one. The older will serve the younger And at the end of chapter 25, we see Esau, he's the older twin, he was hungry, and he ends up selling his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob. He sold it to him for some lentil soup. He gave all that inheritance away, he gave all that stuff away, 
simply for some lentil soup. In chapter 27, we see Rebecca and Jacob, they devise a plan to deceive Isaac. He's the elderly father. He's literally on his deathbed. They know God's plan is to use Jacob's line to be his people. That, that, that's how God's going to work through Jacob's line. And they decide uh, that they can help God accomplish his plan. They're going to step in and they're going to help God. And Jacob and his mother, they start down this path of selfishness and deceit. They send Esau out on this bogus hunt. Then they take advantage of Isaac, who's literally laying on his deathbed and he can't see, and they trick him into giving Esau's blessing to Jacob because, hey, they know God's plan, so we're just going to shortcut God's plan and do it our way. And because of what he did, he ends up having to run for his life. His brother Esau is actually going to start planning to kill him. And it's amazing how fast Jacob goes from, I've got this, God, don't worry about it, to this is never going to work, I'm out of here. Right? And if you've ever tried to follow God, if you've ever thought you've seen his plans, I'm sure you've found yourself in that same situation. Uh, my wife and I have talks all the time, and she always reminds me when I say, why doesn't God just tell me what I'm supposed to do right now? And she said, because you would stop listening and try and do it yourself. And unfortunately, I have proved that to be true uh, throughout my life. But what we do know is that God's plan is still going to be accomplished, right? His will will be done, but Jacob is going to have a tough road to hoe. He's going to have some problems growing up because of his lack of faith, because he doubted, because he stopped depending on God, right? He believed that he knew a better way, and now he was going to be running for his life for some time. So this is where we pick up in chapter 28. Jacob is on the run. He's heading to his mother's brother's house, his uncle's place. To find a wife. So if you grab your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 28. I'm going to start in verse 10. Jacob is on the run. Verse 10 starts. So Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Uh, and he came to a certain place and he stayed there the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread across to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so as we read this, we know that this is a, a long journey from Beersheba to Haran. It's about 3,000 miles, give or take a little bit. He's on foot, he's walking, so this is a several week journey. And in this, this part of the scripture we see he came to a certain place, but if as we continue, we'll see that there was actually a name, right? He comes to a, a town, Luz. He's probably just outside the city limits, but he's near this town. It's a major city at the time. And that lets us know that into this several-week journey, he's about two or three days in at this point. And this is an interesting note to, at this point in the story, is that the narrator, he only def defines this as a certain place, 
right? The narrator doesn't let us know that this is a significant city. The narrator doesn't tell us anything special about it. He said there's just a certain place, and at this point in the story, that's all he wants us to know, even though it is a major city. And Jacob goes to sleep, and he has this dream, and this is one of the more popular stories in Genesis. It's often referred to as Jacob's Ladder, and the exact description of the Hebrew word that is translated ladder is is hotly debated in, in circles on if it's a ladder, if it's a stairway, if it's this or that, and they kind of discuss about what this different thing is. But really, the, the type of apparatus in Jacob's dream is not as important as the attributes, as what this stairway is doing, what this ladder is doing. So we're going to focus on those this morning. And the first thing is that we have to look at the language of this. The language of this is important. And we see that the language here corresponds somewhat with the story of the, the Tower of Babel that we read in Genesis chapter 11. Now with the Tower of Babel, man was trying to reach God. They were building something, it started on earth, and they were trying to reach towards God. They were trying to work their way towards heaven. But in contrast to the Tower of Babel, where man tried to reach God, here we have God reaching down to man. Right, with the, the, the literal translation of here in the, in the Hebrew word is a place toward heaven. So they're saying that these stairways started in heaven and it was placed towards earth. Right? It started in heaven, it came towards earth. One commentator, he wrote this. The impression is made that the narrator wishes to express that the communication between heaven and earth is established by an initiative from on high on the part of God. The contact between heaven and earth exists by the grace of God. It's just by God that he reaches down to us. Second, we see that angels were ascending and descending on these steps. And angels are messengers, they're servants from God. They're sent to guard and communicate and protect those who God calls his own. Hebrews tells us that there are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, right? And this ladder is providing a connection between the divine and the human realms, that God has established this connection. But third, don't miss this, right? The the subject is not the ladder, but it's God, and God is standing there. He's standing there on top. He's standing there beside it. He is sovereign over this whole event, and it is God himself who is reaching down, who is initiating contact with Jacob. It is God who is sending his angels up and down to minister to Jacob. It is God and his sovereignty. And this heavenly activity in this desolate place on Jacob's behalf was simply because of God. Because God orchestrated it. God ordained it. God made this happen. And when we actually see the arrangements of the descriptions, we go from the ladder to the angels to the Lord. It's narrowing our focus to the central point of this vision, which is God himself. According to one Hebrew scholar, the Hebrew suggests that Jacob was exclaiming with uplifted arms and an open mouth in astonishment. He was saying, look, there's a ladder. Look, there's, there's angels. Look, it's God. Right? And he was going and narrowing it down like, oh, this is kind of cool. That's really cool. And God is just awesome. And we see that, and as he is in this writing, that it is the Lord himself. And with this divinely provided link between heaven and earth, God affirms the covenant that he made with Abraham. He makes it here again, right? He made it with, God made it this covenant with Abraham, then he made it with um, 
Isaac, and then now he makes it with Jacob. And it's a promise that includes God's continuous presence. It's a promise that includes God's protection. And it's a promise that includes hope for the future. And God makes that there. This is actually a really great dream for somebody to have who's running for their lives. Right, as they are running for their lives, they're sleeping on a rock, God comes down and speaks to them and says, hey, I'm with you, hey, I'm gonna protect you, and hey, your future's gonna be okay. Right, I've got it in my hands. God reveals himself, and then he reaches out to the one who's running away. And I want you to look at what happens next as we look at verse 16. And it says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And you can imagine how Jacob was feeling at this time. He had just deceived some people. He just lied to some people. He's running for his life, but then God reveals himself to us, and he has this mix of emotions and feelings, right? He has terror because he was in the presence of God. And regardless of what these people write about these crazy situations where they have these death experiences and they claim to see God and they argue with God about the size of their wings and they argue with God about that and they start having questions about God, when we read Scripture and we see that somebody comes in face-to-face contact with God, they tremble in fear, Right? Their sins become very evident against the holiness of God. And we see Jacob here, right? When they come before God, they shut their mouths. Their unrighteousness is made so clear in the holiness of God that fear takes over their bodies. However, we also see here in this passage that Jacob is filled with love. Right? He's filled with adoration for God as God reached out to him and sent angels to minister to him, to heal him, to restore him. Right? And he was overwhelmed with love because he was loved first. And it invoked this sense of the stun, this awe, this majesty. And we see that as he is processing these emotions, he, Jacob just declares, this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. This place is awesome. And this expression, the house of God, that Jacob recognizes the presence of the Lord in this desolate place and this gate of heaven, it recognizes access to God. It recognizes the presence of God of where he is. And both of these feelings, both this access to God and this presence of God were prompted by the vision of this ladder. And again, when we go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the word Babel or Babylon, this Assyrian word means it's the gate of the gods. It's how we get to God, and this ladder from heaven is the only way to God. This ladder is the gateway to heaven. This ladder signifies not only God's presence, but our access or Jacob's access to the Holy One. And Jacob declares, man, this place is awesome. I am in the presence of God. This place is awesome because God is here. This, this place is only described as a certain place before. But now that God is present, this is an awesome place because God is there. Church, this is grace. We see God's grace in a great light here. Jacob, this conniving believer who was an outcast and alone due to his own sin, Right? Jacob was not seeking God. Jacob was fleeing his own consequences from his own sin. But we see in this passage that God met him, that God came to him where he was. 
that he showed him grace, that God reestablished the covenant that he had had with his father and his grandfather and promised his presence and his protection and promised him hope for the future. And because of such grace, we see Jacob go to worship. And if we look at these next verses, we see how the sun rises on Jacob as he is worshiping. Verses 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but not the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And what we see here in this meeting with God is that it was transforming. As God's grace is in every life that it encounters. God's grace when it comes, it always has a transforming power and effect. And it leads those that experience his grace to not only worship but to a transformed and changed life. We see just in this short passage that Jacob goes from fearful to joyful, that he goes from self-dependent to dependent on God, that he goes from selfish to generous, and the story ends, right? That makes for a great ending to a story, a bad guy meets God, turns good, the end, and we can move on with our lives. The problem is, is this isn't the end. And I know as you guys are reading with us through Genesis, as you continue this week, you're going to see that Jacob still has a lot of work that needs to be happening in his heart. God still has a lot of work to do with Jacob. Jacob still has some wrestling to do with God at this time. And church, the truth is is I I love you all, but I believe that every single one of us is Jacob. I believe all of us still have some work that we need to do. And if you don't believe that, you simply don't know yourself or you don't know the Bible. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We are all people who at one time or another, and if you're like me more often than you want to admit, we find ourselves in flight because of our sins. And we are people who quickly imagine that God is not with us because of our sins, that God doesn't have anything to do with us because of our sins, that he's tired of our stupidity, He's tired of our faithfulness and our doubt. He's sick of dealing with our pride. And he would rather just let us run away. And and to be honest with you, many of us still have a lot of wrestling matches lined up with God. There's still a lot of things that God, we feel God needs to give us answers for. There's still a lot of things that we think we know better than God and so we're gonna tell him how he's wrong and we're right. And there's still some of you right now that are on the mat with God right now as we talk. Right, you are still wrestling with God with something in your life, maybe something that's going on in your family or with your kids or with work or with your own relationship with God, and you think you have the right to wrestle with God. But the truth is, this passage isn't about Jacob, right? And it's not about us. This passage is about Jesus. Right, this ladder that we see in this dream, it is a type of Jesus. It is something that resembles, it is something that is to remind us, it is something that is to predict us of the Jesus to come. And this ladder points us directly to Jesus. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, because Jesus tells us. Right? He doesn't actually tell us, he tells Nathaniel, but it's in Scripture, so we can read it. And if you turn to John 1, 
Jesus is calling his disciples. And he calls Philip, who goes and tells his friend Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah, why don't you come and see? And Nathaniel, from what we know, was a good Jewish young man. Right, he appears to be one who followed God and was continually trying to pursue a relationship with God as a young Jewish man would. And he hears his friend Philip and he kind of laughs it off and he hesitantly goes with his friend to see this Messiah. And if we turn to verse 47 in John 1, it says this. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Okay, that's, there is some humor in there, so let's look at a contrast right here. Jacob would later become Israel, and he was full of deceit, right? If we just look at his life, and here Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and he says, behold, an Israelite, right? Think of Jacob becoming Israel, indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, behold, Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Right? Like when we look at what the scripture is saying, right? He is referencing Jacob's ladder and God is reaching down to man through the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that ladder that God sends down to us and the angels are ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is our ladder, right? Jesus is our stairway. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the way in which God reaches down to us in grace. That ladder that began in heaven and rests towards the earth is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is at both ends of the ladder. At the top, he is Jehovah. He is God. He is the everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And at the bottom of the ladder, he is Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. The glory is that today, Right, that ascends on the Son of Man, that God's glory goes up and down on Jesus, and Jesus facilitates the relationship between heaven and earth. It is Jesus that facilitates the relationship. It provides us access and allows us to stay in the presence of God. Paul writes this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no one else, There is no other way. There is no one in between. There is simply only Jesus. And that is all we need. And we see in Jacob, when he saw that ladder and he saw the presence of God, Jesus, or Jacob proclaimed, this is the house of God. And then when we flip forward to John, Jesus said that he was the house of God. If you remember, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rise it again in three days. Jacob said, this is the gateway to heaven. If you remember, Jesus says, I am the gate. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I'm I'm the only way. I am the only way to heaven. 
And Jacob is in the presence of God and he has access to God. And he's standing in that place and he says, this place is awesome. We say, when we know Jesus, how awesome is Jesus? Right? How awesome is Jesus that he provides us the way to God, that he provides us access to God? Right? It is when we are with Jesus that we find ourselves in the presence of God. It is through Jesus that we find the way to God. He is our access to God. It is Jesus who comes to us in a certain place when we are hiding. It is Jesus who sees us when no one else does. It is through Jesus that we are restored and transformed. It is through Jesus that we are given life. It is the love of Jesus, a love that led Christ to die for us even though we were still sinners. It is that same love that leads us to a life of worship. And church, we have to be honest with ourselves because so often we limit what worship is. We think it's this time that we sing one or two songs. We maybe think it's that time that we come to church for an hour, but there is so much more to worship than just this inner spiritual feeling that we get. Yes, worship does find itself in the expression of corporate and public and tangible acts of worship. That is 100% true. But real worship is found in real life change as we walk in the presence of God. Right? Paul tells us that is to be an evident in all parts of our lives, so we are to have a life of worship. Paul appear, uh, appeals to the Christians in Rome. He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is our lives that are to be worshipped. It is the way that we act that is to be worshipped. Right, it's through Jesus that our lives are transformed, and when we turn to Jesus, our life's journey completely changes. Right, when we start to follow Jesus, when God's grace enters into our lives, we are no longer on some casual touring expedition, just trying to go through life. We just say, hey, I just need to graduate high school, or maybe I just need to go to college, and then I'm going to get married, and then I'm going to have kids, and then I'm going to have a career, and then I'm going to retire, and life's going to be great, and I'm going to take selfies along the whole way, and it's just, that's what my life's about. That's not how it works, right? But the truth is, is when we turn to Jesus, our lives are transformed into some sacred journey of following him. Right? In worship, we become disciples of Jesus, people that love God, people that try to live like Jesus, people that help others do the same. Right? We want to help people love God. We want to help people act and live like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is true worship. This is what happens to people that experience the grace of God. This is what happens to people who are in the presence of an awesome God. Theologian Bruce Walkey, he said this about Jacob's worship in Genesis 28. He said, simply becoming aware of God's presence transformed the meaning and sanctity of our chartered paths. Our life is no, not simply a wandering, but a journey to the holy city with a holy God. And the truth of us, is, the truth is that there are many people that are in this room, there's many people that are still listening to us that are just wandering around. Right, we're just wandering around, we're lost. We think that we're hiding because we think that God wants nothing to do with you. 
Right, so you tried to hide. Some of you are running from God because you're afraid that you offended him in some, too severely, that you offended him in some way that he's never going to be able to forgive you and his only option when he comes face to face with you is to punish you. None of that is true. Jesus sent his ladder. It's called Jesus and he sent his ladder to you for his glory. Right, he sent you to, to you for his glory. We say that I am too lost that God could never find me. We say I'm too broken, God could never heal me. We say I'm too hurt that God could never restore my joy. I'm too shameful that God could never love me. And God looks at us and says, watch me. Right? Let me tell you about my love. Let me tell you who I am. Maybe you forget, but I am an awesome God. Right? Test me on every single one of those. Do you remember the guy that claimed to be the greatest sinner of all? God showed his glory and had that man write half of the New Testament. Right? You think you're jacked up. God says, I could do one better than you. God is reaching down to you. He's not reaching down to you with a ladder. He's reaching down to you with his son, Jesus. Right? And he can and he will not just put your life back together. He will give you a new life. Right? And Jesus, Scripture tells us that we are a new creation. Right? The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Man, it is through Jesus that life begins. And I would love to talk to you about finding hope, right? Love and peace in a relationship with Jesus. If that is something you have questions about or you want to explore what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus because you don't have one, I would love to talk to you. I know that Pastor Tim would love to talk to you. He's out working with our kids, I believe. He's working with our kids. Side note, I know we're getting into this. Side note, today, anniversary, Tim, three years at the church. Three years for Tim. You can clap, right? The only time we're clapping during the sermon. Um, three years and five days, March 1st. But anyway, uh, great, great uh, addition to the church staff. Grateful for him. And so if you have never been baptized and you want to be obedient to the call of Jesus and the disciples, um, come and talk to me after service. Let's talk about what baptism means. You can email me, you can call me, you can see me up here, you can email or call Tim or the office, and we would love to set up a time and talk to you about baptism for some of you that are running from God. Some of you think that finding Jesus was the end, right? I, I love you. If that's you and you fall in that category, you said, hey, I found Jesus, game of hide and seek is over, I win, uh, I love you. But the truth is, is when I was young, and when I was immature, and when I didn't know much, that's what I thought. So I hope that's not you. I hope I didn't offend anybody. But that's definitely not true, right? It's not, I find Jesus, I win, game over. Here's the truth, right? When we find Jesus, when we commit our lives to Jesus, it is just the beginning of all eternity, right? We are just starting. And if you're sitting out, right, you're sitting out in the game, you've taken your pack off, as we used to say, because you have found Jesus, chances are if you put your pack back on and look around, you won't find Jesus. Right? You won't find him, and you'll need to get back to following him. You'll need to get back to reading his word on a consistent basis. I want to encourage you, if you're not, find a community group to become a part of. Come to church early on Sundays. We have 
Bible studies here and be a part of that group. Put your faith in action and serve in the church or maybe serve in some ministry outside the church. The truth is that Jesus is too awesome to have spectators as disciples. Now, Jesus does not say, hey, watch me do this. Jesus tells every one of his disciples two words, follow me. That's all he says, follow me. If you're not following Jesus, you have to ask yourself, am I a disciple of Jesus? But the truth is, I think the challenge that many of us face today is to continue to remain in the presence of God. To remember his love for us, and it's evident in his son on the cross. And is our life a continuous worship of a God that loves us that much? Each and every day. And Some people say, oh yeah, I did this for 10 minutes. Well, let me challenge you to the truth. Each and every second, are you remaining in the presence of God? That's, that's the command. It's not when you feel like it. It's not on Sundays. It's not on Saturdays. It's not on Wednesday small group or on Tuesday morning quiet time. It is to remain in the presence of God on a regular basis. And baptism signifies that we've entered into this relationship with God. It demonstrates Jesus giving us access to the Father and us becoming a part of the family. But if we look at the other ordinance, the Lord's Supper is our reminder of our need to dwell, to abide, to live in, to remain in fellowship in the presence of Christ. And when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder of the price that God paid so that we could dwell in the presence of him forever. It is a reminder of the life and death of his son who was sacrificed so that you could dwell in his presence every second of every day. And Peter teaches us this doctrine of atonement, the substitutionary atonement that is found in the death of Jesus. And Peter writes this. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And he's talking about Jesus here. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And it's through his death that we have been healed. It's through his wounds that we have been healed. And as we take the communion cups, it is this wafer on top that signifies the body. If you do not have one of these cups, let's go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll have somebody pass it out and get it to you. But you can take this bread out at this time. It is this bread, right, that reminds us of the incarnation of Christ. It reminds us that Jesus came and bore the body of a human and then was sacrificed, right, had wounds so that we could each be healed. And all of our sins, right, they're under his shed blood that we are forgiven of every sin. It is through the forgiveness that we are able to remain in Christ, that we are able to abide in him and maintain fellowship with his church. In 1 John it says this, if we say that we have fellowship 
with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. I'm just going to ask at this time, steer your mic. Rick's going to pray for us. And I would just ask that we'd hold on to these elements. We'll partake of these as a family. And as Rick prays, you just remember the price that was paid so that you could remain in fellowship with God. This is the beauty of us as a covenant, brothers and sisters, that when we gather on a Sunday, we get to do this together. This is all part of the better covenant. The author of Hebrews says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the covenant he gave to us as his church, as his bride, as he laid his life down for us, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. So let's do this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives that we get to come together in fellowship and in union with you, our triune Godhead, to share this meal, this meal that your son laid down for us. May we do so with the remission of the sins that we all have because of the shedding of his blood to make us stand righteous and holy before you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Body which is broken for you, and this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let's take of the elements together, first the bread, then the juice. Church, I want to encourage you this week to intentionally, right? Look at your days, look at your minutes, look at your seconds, and intentionally walk and seek the presence of God in your lives and in your worship, right? In your lives, you should just have this display of just loving God and telling others about God's grace and loving others as Jesus loved you. And that will come out of your worship when you're in the presence of God church this week